You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today we have yet another awesome guest on the show. We have Michelle Playfair who is a senior delivery lead and I got that right. Thank goodness. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Hello. Fabulous to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure already. I know and I'm I'm not even going to pretend it's an easy question, but we'll, we'll go with it as the first one out of the gate. What is your job? It is an excellent question because the job of delivery lead probably means something to people who work in software development and product companies specifically. But to other people, such as my family who are in teaching and education, it means absolutely nothing. I could be just bringing pizzas to people, delivery as far as they know. So I am working at CultureAmp as a senior delivery lead in the quality practice. So it's kind of doubly confusing. A delivery lead, depending where you are, your mileage may vary, is someone who helps development teams who are self-organizing to become better versions of themselves and do continuous improvement. There's a little bit of product management, a little bit of project management, a little bit of people skills, a little bit of removing obstacles. I'm trying to make sure that the team is happy, bit of care and feeding, arm waving, cat herding. It it is quite a difficult job to describe. And yes, people who write code may say, what do you even do here anyway? If you've seen Office Space, if you can imagine the Bobs, what would you say it is you do here? Um, As little as possible, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's, it's mostly, I like to think of it as kind of, if you've ever seen curling, you know how curling mm-hmm. works where that there's the people that are kind of rolling the heavy rocks and then there's the people with the brooms just trying to make the heavy rock go where it should go. I have the broom. I'm the person with the broom and uh, the rest of the development team are kind of rolling down the rocks. How's that for an analogy? That is the possibly the most beautiful <laughs> career analogy anyone has used on this podcast. I'm sweeping the ice, baby. We need some sort of cartoon because, like, the problem is that implies that you're doing one thing, right? You're just, like, sweeping. Oh, true. Well, you need to have the, the things coming at that it's broom. True. But, you know, the, the, the development team is also doing more than one thing, not, not just hurling rocks. It's a very simplified analogy. But, it, yeah, it's a lot, of, a lot of reducing friction, removing obstacles, and just generally helping the team deliver software more easily. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> it's all over. The podcast's over. That You made that sound so easy. Thank um, you. This is great. <laughs> it's been wonderful to be here. So in that you mentioned continuous development, and that's actually part of why I've brought you on is to talk about a bit about Agile, which you didn't mention, but I'm going to throw in there. Do you want to sort of, I mean, I think we all like to think of ourselves as continuously developing humans. We're not these sort of like static things that reach a point where we're perfect and then that's it. I speak for myself at least. I would hate to presume for you. But yeah, could you talk a little bit maybe to continuous development? That's the goal, isn't it? Like continuous improvement. You don't want to just go, oh, I'm done. I, as you say, the perfect human. I think that's kind of what keeps our brains engaged and keeps us connected to the world. You know, forget work. If you've got curiosity and you're always trying to become a better version of yourself every day, 
you know, that's kind of how we, how we learn and grow. Yeah, I, I suppose I have avoided the term agile. A lot of people now, when you say that, they automatically roll their eyes a little bit. It's one of those terms that gets very well overused. Uh, one of my friends said, you know, everybody's agile. You can't find any company anywhere that's going to admit to not being agile, right? Oh, Everyone's I like, I'm agile. You're agile. You're agile. We're agile. We're also agile. <laughs> How agile are you? Oh, we're very agile. You know, nobody's kind of bowls up and goes, yeah, no, we don't do that. Everyone, no one will admit. You, you, know, you know people that will admit? A company I, that will actually say? I don't know if you've heard of these things called universities. Yeah. I have a friend who's been an agile person at universities. Okay, well, that's definitely maybe maybe in the fancy part of the university. Yeah, S- systems in. probably like the HR kind of. Uh, look, I don't know. I mean, I, I like the idea. There's two. I don't want to say competing, but two floating around schools of thought on agile. One of them is the heart of agile, which was put out by Alistair Coburn, who's one of the original software development agile people, and. He kind of boils it down to when you say what is agile, it's about being able to collaborate, deliver, reflect, and improve. So as you say, it's not about whether you can do cartwheels or touch your toes. It's That's kind of how he synthesized it into your, no matter what you're doing, if whether it's at a university or at a school or in your HR department or in your software department, are you collaborating with other people? Are you delivering whatever it is you're supposed to be delivering? It could be software. It could be a course. It could be, could be anything. It could be pumpkin bread, whatever you're delivering. And then are you reflecting on how did it go? Were there too many cooks in the kitchen? Was the oven a little bit too hot? You know, thinking about how it went. And then based on that, can you improve? So that's kind of his synthesis of what it means for getting buzzwords and rah-rah and and all sorts of other things. And then there's a vaguely similar one called Modern Agile. And it's it's a similar sort of principle. It boils down to four things. They're quite simple. It's not necessarily related to software. It's whether you're working well together as a team and kind of striving for that continuous improvement that we were talking about before. But yeah, a lot of a lot of people flinch when you say agile now because they think that means you have to go and pay you know, $250 to get a certificate and a whole bunch of other stuff. I remember doing a presentation for junior dev back in the before times, kind of a bird's eye view of that, kind of mentioned these basic principles and someone came up to me afterwards and said, oh gosh, you know, oh, thank you for that. I had no idea. I, I Googled it and all I could get were things you had to pay, like buy this, buy this, buy this. And I said, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> if it says buy it, it's probably one to avoid. There's some, it's a little bit simpler than that. So yeah, it's agility in the sense of reacting to change and, and trying to improve as you go, I think, is the main gist. Which I think I'd like to think most people, especially listeners, keen to do, whether it's in their own lives or at work, But one of the things that I found cool when I moved to tech about Agile is that it gave you a structure to do that with. Like it wasn't just sort of like me sitting there with a to-do list and then doing like the pluses and minuses kind of approach, which is how I got through. Well, I still get through most of my life. But it it was kind of cool to see a team of different people with different roles come together and use these structures to sort of help them navigate that collaboration. 
I thought that was kind of cool. And do you know what I found super interesting? I did a postgrad teaching course and the number of of tools and techniques that I see touted as you know, business collaboration tools and they are basically what teachers get taught how to show kids how to work in the classroom together. I find that quite, I mean, it's cute. I don't know if people in the education field know how many of their little tools are being co-opted into branded (laughs) business agility tools. But yeah, there you go. Uh, Someone's worked out how to make money out of it. So kudos to them. Yeah, I guess it's not all money, but yeah, just definitely techniques around um, collaboration in a classroom have come in very handy in facilitating groups at work. (laughs) And, you know, not that it's just about plugging transferable skills, but that's a very important transferable skill. So what is the most challenging part of your role, would you say? Oh, it's the most challenging part of anyone's role, really. It's those other humans, isn't it? I mean, we are all different and everybody has their own personalities and their own likes and dislikes and ways of working that they like. Um, And just when you have a team, particularly, well, maybe even more so now that we're all online, it's quite an extra challenge to get people to work well together uh, or seamlessly together. I've worked quite a long time in the US and worked with people from different countries on top of that and just navigating cultural differences as well is quite interesting, a very interesting field that is, I am by no means an expert, but I think it's one of those things where awareness is quite helpful. Again, having spent a little bit of time in a classroom and had that kind of training around neurodiversity and people with disabilities and people with different cultural backgrounds, I've also been able to kind of drag that along into the corporate world as well. And just having awareness of people's different needs. You know, it's not bad thing as in a bad challenge obstacle, but it's something that when you're working with other humans, there's a lot of moving parts that you kind of have to keep in mind. So I would say that is the biggest challenge. Hmm. Yeah. And also the most most worthwhile challenge, of course. Definitely. I, I think all our jobs would be incredibly easy without people being involved. And it is interesting that that at least, I mean, uh, spoiler alert, I'm pretty old and predate the idea of necessarily working well in teams back to the days when the ideal 10x gun programmer was the sort of person that would lock themselves in a room and not speak to anybody and come up with the amazing code. And a lot of people, I think, were encouraged to come into IT with the amazing promise that you would not have to deal with people, just computers. And it's quite a shock to people now, I think. Hopefully more people now realize it's not like that. (laughs) But I think to some people it's still a shock when it's like, oh, what? I have to talk to humans? No, this is why I came into IT. I don't want to talk to people. Oh, sorry, my friend. It's kind of part of the role now. I'm actually not sure what job is left where you don't need to talk to people. There's not very many. My daughter is looking for one. If anybody knows of one, please send to the podcast. So far, she's come up with things like doing the night fill at a supermarket oh, when no, the they store is closed and no customers are there. But you don't have to – There, you will 
be around colleagues, but there isn't necessarily needing to engage with members of the public. Um, Perhaps housekeeping in a hotel. Again, you may run into other humans, but most of the time you're just, you know, vacuuming like as fast as you can. So there are some, but not very many. And certainly not in, what do we call it now? Professional services? I'm more thinking of, uh, and see, this is the intelligence of my brain that can't think of the intelligence. What do they call it? Like intellectual labor, creative pursuits or whatever they're calling intellectual workers these days. Basically, the people that sit on their butts in front of computers, you know the ones I mean. And we squeeze our brains, try and get good stuff to come out. Exactly. Those ones. Us. Okay. We'll try. We'll um, keep an eye out for intellectually stimulating solo jobs. Yeah, definitely hit us up if you think of one of them. That's, that's maybe building your own website just for you without needing that's customers. Not, uh, they don't sound very lucrative. Money. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> I've done it. Can confirm no money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tortured artist, perhaps. Performance art, just painting in a room alone. I don't know. This doesn't sound fun. Anyhow, we're here to talk about you. Although, you know, it could be interesting to bring your daughter in and we could do like a careers counselling session and see what we come up with. That That's a whole other podcast. That's it. That's a different podcast. You mentioned quality practice though. At least I think that's the word that, that you I said. I did. Up. I did say that. That sounds quite buzzwordy. I what kind of, it? yeah, I kind of wandered into that as well. I forgot to segue into that. Okay. So in one of my past lives, I have been a test manager as well as working in agile things. And one of the things we are doing at CultureAmp, which many other companies have done as well, is to try and get teams to having a collective ownership of quality. So it's it's aligned, I guess, for the DevOps thing. You know, you build it, you own it, you you fix it in production. Also, you test it. So instead of having a testing team or a person on the team whose job it is to say whether or not the tests pass. The idea is that your whole team will be responsible for it. So the team, most tests now, theoretically, the bulk of the work should be done by writing code. It's test automation. So people can write code to do the testing as well as they can write code to do the developing. But there is a little bit of a learning curve if people aren't used to doing that. So the idea of having a quality practice is we are moving our previously hands-on testers into more of a coaching role. And it's something at Lassian calls the quality assistance model, whereby you've got a team of coaches that can help you out with things like, how should I test this? You know, what sort of automation should I use? Do I need unit testing, API testing? What kind of API testing? What do you recommend? How should we, you know, verify this before we go into production? What is a test strategy supposed to look like? So we've got a group of people in the quality practice whose job it is to help the teams level up and feel comfortable that they are able to do their own testing of the software that they write. So part of my role is helping the testers transition into a coaching role. So I've kind of got my left hand that's the testing side helping out with that, but also helping the team form as a unit of quality coaches instead of being kind of soloed out in different teams and also helping the teams who are looking around going, hey, where did our tester go? And helping them adjust to the idea that they need to 
potentially work a little bit differently and working on engagement models between the individual teams and our quality practice. I imagine there could be a bit of resistance. Do you know, it? yes and no, possibly. I think a lot of it is making sure that teams have the time to do it because the main concern is around oh no, it's another job. You've given me another job to do. I'm already overloaded. I can't possibly do this testing on top of everything else. So if the company is going to do this as a strategy, they need to make sure that they've planned that, yes, you're you're essentially potentially removing somebody from a team. You need to make sure the team has got enough capacity to do the stuff that they need to do and to learn the new techniques and, and make sure that they don't feel overloaded. So I think that's probably the main concerns are, oh, we don't have time and the other one, we don't know how. So if you build in the time and provide people that will help with it, hopefully it gets reduced a little bit, you know, and you may have some people that say, I can't work under these conditions. I refuse. I will never do any testing ever and rage quit. I, you know, hopefully that's not too many people because I think most people working in modern product companies don't necessarily expect that you're going to have a whole, you know, offshored QA team somewhere that you just lob code at over the fence. I think that's that's not very common anymore. I know when we did this before at Zero, that the teams were quite into it. Like they saw it as another skill that they could learn and were quite keen on the idea of, you know, oh, it's a new automation framework, new toys, sweet, show me how this works. And yeah, they got they got really good at it really quickly and, and kind of got right into it and it was not as big a deal. But I, I can sort of see how people don't like it, but that to me gets filed under the whole, you know, you don't want to talk to people thing. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. like, yeah, maybe that's not how it used to be, but that's kind of how it is now. You have to collaborate. You have to support the code you write if you're doing, you know, kind of a DevOps model. And also you might have to test your work. I don't know. What is the benefit of having teams like own their work in that way? I think a lot of it is around, well, there's there's a bunch of different ones. If you want to look at it from a, a blunt instrument, it's making sure that the tests get done at all because people, companies these days don't tend to hire specialist testers for every team. So you might say, okay, well, if you're spinning up teams like crazy, they'll hire engineers, but they may not hire a specialist tester. So then then already, here's your first problem. Who's doing it? You know, someone's got to do it. I think a lot of developers these days are quite interested in being full stack and they like knowing how things go work from go to woe. Like they're actually really interested in what customers think. They they might be interested to talk to actual customers and, you know, find out more about UX and find out, oh wow, let's look at our analytics. Oh wow, people are really using this thing. This is great. I feel really happy about this stuff that I built. I mean, to me, that's kind of how a modern developer thinks. And Maybe not everybody, but that's that's a pattern that I've seen around people again that are wanting to continuously improve. They're wanting to learn a new a new technique. It reducing silos is good. I think if a whole team is collectively responsible for their own quality, then they are the ones that know that particular thing that they're building the best, rather than kind of lobbing it at someone else and going here, you know, test this. Well, if they're not haven't potentially if they're maybe even outside the team, it's quite hard for them to come up with 
good tests. They don't know it as well. There's always a lag and then it's like, oh, we can't deliver things fast enough. Oh, testing's always the bottleneck. They're always so slow. Whereas if you're doing it more as a team, you can get into quite a good rhythm and get things delivered and tested and out the door a lot faster. I just think that's it's fairly well proven, I think, amongst the teams that are the high-achieving, high-performing teams tend to work that way. Your mileage may vary. It does depend on what you're working on, I think. It makes sense, though. I mean, I, mean, I do it, – it is funny to me that teams – and, and companies leap at the whole idea of DevOps and they they understand continuous delivery, continuous integration, teams supporting the work in production, but then they might balk at the idea of developers doing testing. It's like, but you've got – the team is owning the whole thing. Why, why is this funny little island an exception to the idea? I don't know. Testing still has a very strange – People have a strange view of it, I think. It's one of those things where it's a bit like teaching, where people think anybody can do it because, the, you know, it's like testing. Anyone can do it. Get keyboard, just push buttons. <laughs> yeah, see, it's easy. Anyone can do that. I'm like, mm, that's not really how it works. But thank you for playing. It's a nice, nice thought. What does an average day at work look like for you? An average day at work is probably me being in a lot of meetings, which sounds unproductive, but when you work with people, that is what the work looks like. So I work across multiple groups and multiple teams. So I think that's kind of why conversations tend to proliferate because I'm working with other delivery leads in the delivery practice. I'm working with testers in the quality practice or our quality coaches, I should say, in the quality practice. And I'm working with individual teams as well. So at the moment, because I'm fairly new at CultureAmp, I started at the end of January. So I think some of it is still trying to figure out who the right people are to talk to about some things and trying to get around to the different groups that I want to talk to because it's a little bit funny when you're online that it's sometimes hard to find the right people to talk to. Whereas if you're in the office, you could basically stand on a chair and kind of go, you know, Oi, who wants to learn about quality? You know, it's a bit hard to do that bellowing out in Slack. So there's still a fair bit of getting to know people, which is essential. But yeah, we're doing different things around team forming because our quality practice is just starting. So we're getting together. We've got our first planning meeting coming up tomorrow, I think because we're just starting to plop things on our JIRA board. We're starting to get requests from other teams asking for help, which is fabulous, and just going to plan how we're going to do that. So we're, we're still in early days of, you know, when will we have a retro? When will we have a planning session? What should our board look like? How are we going to talk to other people? So, yeah, there's a lot of consensus gathering as well. CultureAmp is a very autonomous company in that they very much believe in teams Doing, being invested, doing the work, getting engagement, getting responses from people. So there is a lot of consensus and conversation when you want to try something new. You don't just sort of waltz in in your combat boots and go, today we are all starting to work like this. That does not fly. So there's a lot of preemptive conversations talking to teams about, hey, you know, what are you doing? How's it going? Do you want to try this? And, and kind of presenting different ideas and getting feedback on how to proceed. So yeah, I spend a lot of time talking to people at the moment. Hopefully it's productively talking to people. <laughs> well, I mean, we could we could ask the, the other ends of the meetings, but 
I think it is very common for people to feel like meetings aren't actual work. And I think it's really important to highlight that no, meetings are actually quite important. It is work. And I mean, you can relabel them if it makes people feel better. I have been conducting facilitated sessions, you know, because that's that's often what it is. You know, we are doing a lot of collaboration work on Miro in shared documents. It's not just somebody sort of standing up and and talking at people. There's a lot of getting together. And I think, again, because you're online, it feels a lot more formal. I can't necessarily just rock over to a couple of people's desk and go, hey, let's work on this thing together. We have to schedule it because, you know, working from home is great. It adds flexibility. Someone might be ducking out to pick up a kid or doing a thing, you know, so we kind of have to schedule it. And then Yes, it it becomes a meeting, but it's really just, you know, smashing out some work together collaboratively. Or getting to know who's who. And that is, it does take a while. And I'm very curious about this one, but what was your path to get to this role? Like what was your, I'm I'm guessing very rudely that this wasn't necessarily a job available when you were in high school. You are correct. (laughs) I don't think my job was available when I was in high school. So what was your, like, what was the plan? for like high school Michelle versus like what actually happened to end you up here? I'm being outed as one of the most boring people on God's earth. Okay, so when I was younger, I was quite interested in actually in being an architect or a landscape architect and, oh, boy, this is really dating me. Okay, so back – no, no. Anyway, there was a resource which may not have been online, let's just say, at the time, which – Listed was out. Was it a book? It was a book from Golly. the Commonwealth Employment Service back before Centrelink was Centrelink. Oh, and it I feel listed like out a book, but yeah, potential jobs and things like that. And the economy was actually quite dodgy when I was in high school, and this was sort of going back to the days when you know interest rates were seventeen percent and and whatever, and employment unemployment was quite high. And I thought, wow, okay, I really need to pick a thing that's going to give me a job. So I, when I looked up architecture, it was like, okay, that's six years of university, eh, you know, you get to the end, you might get a job, you might not. And I went, oh, that doesn't sound like fun. But then I looked, I was, I was quite interested in computers. So I thought, well, look, here's a computer thing. And they were like, mate, you need computers. Absolutely. You will have a job. No worries. And I thought, all right, here we go. That's what I'll do then. So I did all the kind of went backwards and went, okay, what do I need to get into a computing degree at uni? And then what do I need to do in year 11 or 12? And this is going back to year nine. That's how boring I am. I picked it out in year nine to do the subjects in year nine and 10 to get the subjects into year 11 and 12 to get me into computer science. Yeah, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit unimaginative, but you know, it did work. I got a job. So after university, I worked for what is now called Accenture. But back then it was Anderson Consulting. And again, see earlier note, bad economy in Australia. There wasn't much work in Australia. So we were all exports. And the year I started, and maybe the following year as well, Anderson actually won an export award from the Australian government for exporting humans and bringing money back into Australia. So when I. When you say export, like. Were you sent overseas oh, yes. as human? Everyone. Oh. Everyone was sent. We all got sent overseas. There was no work or very little work in Australia. So 
most people that I started with ended up in New Zealand working at the IRD, which is the New Zealand Tax Department, which was a very, very big, very government project. And I thought, oh, I just don't know that I want to do that. So I, I said, oh, no, I don't want to work overseas, please and thank you. And so I did not get sent in the first round to New Zealand. I got sent to the US like a week later. And so I was working in the US and then New Zealand, but at the National Bank of New Zealand. So I worked overseas for 10 years, basically. I did not work in Australia, which interestingly made it very hard when I came back to Australia, because I think a lot of people experience this as migrants to Australia, where they look at your resume and go, you don't have any work experience in Australia. Let me tell you, that also happens to Australians coming back to Australia. Like, you don't have any work experience in Australia. I was like, oh man, really? So yeah, that was actually the end of my software development career pretty much when I came back to Australia because the most recent job I'd worked at in the US was using Smalltalk. And that was quite popular then. It was just being overtaken by Java, probably. That was kind of, it was just passing. The ships were passing. Smalltalk was going down. Java was going up. But in Australia, I don't think there were very many places that used Smalltalk. So I came back and it was like, "Ah, this Java thing is so complicated. You'll never catch on. I'm like, oh, come on. They're almost the same. Like, "Eh, yeah, no. And you don't have any work experience in this country. Like, oh, okay. So thus began my more post technical roles, shall we say, because up until that point, I'd been, you know, I'd kind of worked up in Anderson to kind of management level, but was still reasonably hands-on writing code. And then I was out contracting writing code and then, yeah, couldn't really get anyone to pay me to write code. So I had luckily a few other skills, having been a consultant and had to do all of the things. So I ended up being a BA and then I did that for quite some time and then the test manager of the company I worked with quit. So they said, oh, we need a new test manager. Would you like to be a test manager? And I went, heck yeah, why not? So I was a test manager for a little while and I'd been doing a lot of work, just self-educating, I guess, mostly around agile because it seemed like a good way to work and gradually ended up providing training to our customers on how to work in an agile way. We were a vendor, so it was kind of like trying to work out an agile engagement thing and then ended up kind of leaning into the agile stuff on a more job job title related basis, I suppose. And now, interestingly, at CultureAmp, I'm kind of doing the, the testing side and the agile side, which is quite nice. But yes. And in between there as well, I did do my, my postgraduate teaching. And so I have taught IT in schools for six months filling in six for months well I was I had done I was living in Queensland and in Harvey Bay which is a not a particularly large town and I had done prac work at one of the schools and through a series of events their IT teacher got bumped up temporarily to be a deputy principal and then they didn't have an IT teacher so they were desperate enough to to call me and go, please, please look, we're only giving you senior classes. You don't even have playground duty. It's a part-time. We're desperate. And it was quite, I, I felt sad because they were senior kids. These were kids doing their, you know, equivalent of VCE. So, and they didn't have a teacher. And I thought, man, they they were clearly in a, in a very hard place. So I kind of took leave from my job and did or, or scaled that job. I, I was doing two jobs at the same time, but scaled that one back quite a bit. 
and filled in for the six months, at which point the real the real teacher finished his deputy role and stepped back in and they're like, do you want to stay? And I went, it's been lovely, but no, thank you. I don't think that was the world's most boring career path at all. Uh, it was the, the over-planning early on. I, I think, yeah, I don't know. I tell my kids, you know, like you said, the jobs that we have didn't exist when we were at school. So just, you know, don't be so stressed past me. It's going to be all right. Chill. Did the overplanning like continue? Like have you still got, say, a five-year plan? No, it didn't. I think I – think, Used it all up early. Oh, look, I think working for a big, whatever they are, big four consulting company based in the U.S., was enough structure and planning and clawing up the career ladder for me to say, you know what, I do not need to do this again because it was it was ruthless. Like it was, and I think I went to a talk at last conference in in December, and someone was talking about how promotions and things are done at Facebook, and yeah, Ooh. that's even worse. It's brutal. It's I I don't know how you can on the one hand collaborate with your colleagues while with the other hand you're stabbing in the back and knifing them so that you can crawl over them to get promoted I'm just like oh I couldn't deal (laughs) it's just not like not my preferred working environment and it was a little bit it wasn't quite that bad I have to say but there was there was shades of that it was very if you could you know get promoted by screwing somebody over you people would do that and that's not my jam at all so yeah, that that kind of put the kibosh on the whole career ladder thing for me. I was like, I do not need this. I'm tapping out. That doesn't sound like you're doing that badly. It's a hazard I of am... being around for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually it'll work out. I am curious though, like the landscape and architecture sort of stuff, has any of that kind of like, have you ever like looked back on that and gone, oh, you know, maybe I could bring that in somehow or like. No, I never, I never pursued it at all. I think I, I just, I mean, I have a pretty good garden, I guess. I do gardening. That's as close as I get. So no, I'm my, my creative side sadly withered away. I think I'm trying to get it to come back, but it was very sadly ignored for a very long time, which is unfortunate because I think it is very important to be creative and I admire people who are. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that can trickle back into your work in positive ways. Just just like being so. able to facilitate in classes or something is beneficial. Yeah, you know, like visual collaboration and being able to explain yourself by using visuals and drawing, you know, like sketch noters or something. Oh, that would be so such clever. a marvelous skill to have. I keep thinking I need to do the Bicablo training because that is very templated and they teach you how to draw certain things in certain ways. And I think I could cope with that. But I remember, you know, I'm trying to bring these sort of visual things into meetings. And unfortunately, um, my artistic skill is such that it turned out to be distracting because I'd have like this visual and, pe- and people, I'd be talking and people would be looking at the whiteboard. Finally, I'd be like, what? Like, We're just trying to work out what that is. Oh, it's a it's a vase, obviously. Oh, it's oh right. And I thought, oh no, this is definitely not, definitely not having the effect that I was hoping for. 
But yes, that's that's on the back burner. I'll get back to it at some point. Miro is a bit easier. I can just copy paste into something <laughs> into Miro. I don't have to freehand it. So that's a little bit easier. Yeah, you've got the world of clip art. Absolutely. Other than sort of encouraging it to take a bit of a chill, is there any other advice that you would give to a young Michelle? Oh, I have so much advice. Probably think one of the things that I have learned and I have also imparted this to um, unsuspecting high school students, is that it's quite important. It doesn't really matter what you're doing, but, you know, give it a red hot go. Put in, put in some effort into what it is that you're doing um, because people do notice, even no matter what job it is. If you've got a job, I don't know, making sandwiches for people, you can go, oh, this is a terrible job, I don't care, and not put any effort. Or you can go, you know what, I'm going to be – gosh darn it, I'm going to be the best sandwich maker ever and, and you know, really give it a go. And people do do notice that. Like people will notice when you're putting an effort in. And I think if if that's kind of my generic piece of advice for anybody, if you want to get ahead, like a lot of younger people particularly, you get your first job and it might be a rubbish job and you go, oh, this job's so rubbish. I just, you know, oh, whatever. I'm, I'm better than this. <laughs> and they don't necessarily feel it's worth putting an effort in. You know, my first job when I was at, well, not first job, but a job that I had at uni was cleaning the tape drives and putting paper in printers and, you know, soldering busted terminals and, you know, nothing particularly exciting. But, you know, I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to be really good at this. So I always made sure that, you know, during my shift, everything was clean and ship shape and the paper was always in the printers. And then, you know, they had a job for somebody to be a systems administrator in, you know, the graduate school of management. I had an office with my own door, you know, so that when everyone got kicked out of the lab, I'd be like, yeah, well, I'm just going to my office. See you around, suckers. You know, and I think just because I was, you know, willing to do the rubbish job, somebody noticed and went, hey, do you want a better job? So that's that's my generic advice. I love that as a piece of advice. Just put in better effort. Even yeah. if it's just a bit more than you were planning on putting in. Be the best whatever it is you're doing that you can be, you know. Would you have any advice for people, like for the teams where, you know, they've had their tester taken away, people who are taking up like learning testing, any advice for them? Oh, goodness. It's probably too long to even go into. There's a lot. There's, I think probably a generic testing thing is that there is probably more to it than people think. Like I said, a lot of times people testing isn't necessarily highly regarded and people think, oh, you're just, you're just playing with the system and you're just pushing a few buttons. But there is actually quite a bit to it to do it well. And I think when people get shown a few things and they realize that there is actually you know, a method and there are techniques you can use and there are tools and there are things and then it becomes more interesting to them. And they're like, oh, wow, this isn't oh, right, you know, you're not just trying to turn me into a button-pressing monkey. This is actually a tech, you know, there is actually a method to this and then they can kind of get, get more interested in it. But, yeah, that's how to learn testing is, uh, is probably a long, a long topic. If, if people are listening to this and they are interested in learning testing, there is a wonderful site called the Ministry of Testing, which is a UK community group who are my absolute gold star of communities in terms of just the way they do pretty much everything. 
and you can join. There's a paid program, but you can also join for free. It's full of wonderful people. It's full of tips and tricks and tutorials and help. And yeah, it's a, it's a really great, a great resource. So if someone was really wanting to kind of learn things for themselves, I would say go there. I just thought of another generic piece of advice as well, which is I know there's a lot of push to get people coding, that technology is coding. And so if you want to get a job in technology, you must learn to code. And I think it is good to be able to code. I myself learned how to code. I did a computer science degree. There was a lot of coding. But I also understand that it's not for everyone. And so my encouragement to people would be try coding. If you hate it, please don't think that means there is no place for you in tech because technology is so full of so many different roles and so many different things you can do from technical writing to doing what I do, facilitating, I don't code anymore, to doing user interviews and user experience stuff, accessibility work, design, you know, testing. Yes, it's still a job. Helping out customers. I mean, there's just an absolute myriad of roles. Data, data science. I mean, I I could go on. But yeah, I know my daughter living as she does in a house of nerds had a very bad experience at a very young age working with computers and looking at code and just threw her hands up and went, no, I do not like technology. I am never going to use technology. And I just laughed because of course she uses technology all the time. And I said, why are you saying that? She's like, well, I don't code. I'm not like you, you people. And I said, yeah, but you're like a power user. I said, she was doing music at the time. She went out and found an app for composition, learned how to use it, did it, taught the teacher, taught the other kids. I'm like, that's amazing. You're like a power user. She quite liked the idea of being a power user. She's like, Mm -hmm. well, maybe I am. You know, and she'd be a great designer. She's very artistic. But I, I think people get convinced that coding is the only thing. And it's, it's a shame because it's a good message. Like it is good for people to have a chance to try coding. But also I think it's very unrealistic to expect that every single person is going to be like, yes, coding is amazing. I love this. You know, things just aren't necessarily for everyone. So if you've tried coding and you hate it, don't give up on tech. I'm going to add two bits to that. One is if you've tried coding in R and you hated it, don't think that that's necessarily all of coding either because that was evil. And there was something else. No, it's gone. I'll I see you just... R and raise you PHP. Okay. I don't think we need to start a comp- this competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I'll look. How fast yeah. can we get to the bottom? Look, um, there, yeah, exactly. They're, they're true. There's, there's a lot of different ways to make people hate coding. <laughs> but I also think it's really good for people to have a go at coding and just to understand how literal computers are. One of my favorite things was like taking little robots out with little kids and they'd play with the, the robot and be like, oh, it's so cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the robot would do something that they told it to do. And they'd be like, I didn't tell you to do that. You're a naughty robot. And I'm like, that robot is not naughty. It's just doing literally what, it, what you told it to do. But I think that's a really good lesson for a lot of people is that tech is kind of what we tell it to do. It's not smart in and of itself. And it is very, very literal. Mm. Good thing. Yeah, to that's know. true. That's a that's a very good point. Thank you. And also, if it's broken, it may not be your fault. 
Oh, so much. People really, <laughs> they blame themselves when, you know, all these UX problems and people I know are like, oh, I'm so, I am so stupid. This doesn't work. And I'm like, I am my friend. It is not you. No, it's doing what someone told it to do. That's it. They probably told it to do the wrong thing. Well, you know, there's always. Or they didn't think of that path or something. That's that. That's it. You know, I I myself, and I think this is how I ended up in testing. If there's an edge case, I will find it. I will not do it intentionally, but but I am likely to uh, to come across the problem on your website that you didn't realize was there. Looking at you, sixth rental car. That's oh. the last one I found. <laughs> Apparently, no one expects members to uh, log in using RACV membership numbers and actually be able to book cars. <laughs> it pre-fills the data for you and then tells you you didn't enter it. <laughs> I know oh, I didn't funny. enter it. You did, but I should still be able to book my car. Anyway. Are there any myths or misconceptions really about any of the things that we've talked about that you would like to take this opportunity to do a bit of myth squashing? Um. I think I've touched on some of them. I mean, uh, the first one was probably talking about agile, which is that agile is a big expensive thing that you have to pay for and and probably get a piece of paper in order to do anything with it at all, which is not true. Definitely the whole, if you can't code, there's no place for you in tech. That I think that's potentially a myth. If you can't, if, if you don't like working with people, you should work in tech. I think that is also a myth. Mm. Gosh, I'm just full of these. <laughs> what else? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything I haven't. You know, testing is pressing buttons randomly. That's also a myth. It's just just been a whole, just a big myth busting conversation here, Amelia. <laughs> no myth shall survive this podcast. Love it. I feel like I should be blowing something up in the desert. Myth busters. <laughs> One day the podcast will expand. Oh, that'd be so satisfying to like make the myths 3D and then explode them. Wouldn't it? <sighs> okay. Uh, before that idea gets carried away, is there anything else we haven't talked about that you'd like to touch on? Gosh, I don't really know. Um, nothing Nothing specific. This has been a, a rambling rambling tour through, through my career, my not-so-brilliant career. <laughs> I think it's wonderful. In that case, to start wrapping up, I will ask you if you have a shout out, a virtual high five for someone or someone who you think is just doing an awesome job and deserves lots of virtual accolades. Oh my goodness. I, I mm. would like to shout out my my team and my colleagues at Culture Amp because I've felt very welcome there since I joined at the end of January, which has been great. And do you know what? I think the community as a whole, people that run community things, community events. I saw very sadly that DDD Melbourne is, which is a big developer conference in Melbourne, a big community conference in the before times had almost a thousand people and it's not going ahead this year because everyone's exhausted. And I think, you know, a massive shout out to people who've been keeping communities alive and trying to keep people connected um, during these times when we're all online and I'm in a, in a bunch of different communities in, in most of them have kind of gone to Slack and online things, but it is, it is a lot harder. And if you are running one of these groups, we really appreciate you doing that. Very much. 
very much. Okay, so high five to all the wonderful, warm and welcoming people at Culture and people who are keeping communities live in these times that just continue to be challenging amazingly. So Mm. it's a lot of high fives. It's one of the services I provide. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show, Michelle. This has been absolutely delightful and hopefully all the listeners have picked up at least one or two gems of wisdom. Thanks, Amelia. This has been fun. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, You can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee, and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend.